0: Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpe, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and political analyst who has over a million listeners around the world. The Common Bridge is available on Substack.com and draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. Hello, welcome to The Common Bridge. We've got a great topic for you today. It's all about taxes and the IRS. And with us today, two experts from Plant Moran. Welcome, Rachel Keller and Brett Bissonette. Welcome to the Common Bridge. The Common Bridge, of course, is available at substack.com. Please go to substack.com. Enter the Common Bridge in your search engine. Subscribe, if you wish, either a paid subscription or a free subscription. Of course, the Common Bridge is available on all of your podcast outlets. Look for us there and on YouTube TV, and of course, with our friends over at Mission Control Radio on your Radio Garden app. We all listen to debates and commentary about law and policy, and especially taxes. And every law, every policy, and of course, tax regulation require mechanisms to ensure compliance. Well, our President Joseph R. Biden has stated that the IRS needs to be properly funded in order to carry out its mission on our very complex tax code. Taxpayers have been puzzled by missing records, slow refund, late fees for things they paid, and other matters, including slowness in the support that they get directly from the IRS. So today we're going to chat with these two experts who are in the field today, actively advising people from all stripes about tax law and tax regulation. They spent a lot of their time interacting with the IRS and making sure that their clients are in compliance with the tax law. So we anticipate some education and maybe some policy ideas from Plant Moran. We welcome Rachel Keller and Brett Bissonette. Again, welcome to the Common Bridge. Thanks for having us, Rich. So Brett, our audience likes to know a little bit about our guests. So, if you don't mind, maybe a little biographical sketch on you. Where'd you spend your early days? What was your academic preparation? What's your professional career been? And what are you up to today? Live in the state of Michigan. Born and raised here in Michigan.
1: Have a bachelor's degree in accounting. Have been uh, licensed as a certified public accountant since the year two thousand. Went to law school at Ohio Northern University. Got a degree there in two thousand three. Have been um, a practicing attorney since um, 2003, as well. Also have a lot a, a tax um, master's of tax law from New York University, and spent five years as an adjunct uh, tax law professor pro, uh, professor at the University of Dayton. So I've I've had the the unique experience of both practicing uh, law and practicing accounting. Um, as far as me, me personally, um, I, I live in in Davison, Michigan with my wife, Crystal, I, and I have a son, Ryan, who is just
0: going to be starting high school next week. Rachel Keller from Plant Moran, tell us a little bit about yourself. Where were some of your early days, your academic preparation, a little bit about your professional work and what your job is today?
2: Sure. Thanks, Rich. I grew up in a one traffic light small town by the name of Leonard, Michigan. Um, When I was done residing in this small town, I went to a very big university at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, where I got my Bachelor's of Business Administration. I had a very uh, passionate professor of tax in my junior year, which is what inspired me to do internships in tax and then ultimately apply for the Master's of Accounting program. At the University of Notre Dame, which is where I did my grad school work, uh, with a specialization specifically in tax. Um, I have been with Plant Moran since I finished my education, so uh, this month actually is my 22-year anniversary with the firm. Um, We are very industry-focused, so roughly 80 percent of my client work is in the professional service space, um, which then comes with a very heavy federal and state and local tax background. And then the remaining 20% of my book of business is high net worth individual plannings for the individuals and their family. Uh, From an interesting fact perspective, that's what we always ask our interns and new starts to say say at orientation. My fun fact, um, I've um, run the Boston Marathon twice. Uh, I would say at this point, it was a lifetime ago, but I did in fact do that. And then uh, I'm into Harleys. I own two and I'm part of an all women's riding club.
0: Fantastic. Look, you've both been at this professionally for many years. What's different about today's environments versus past times? And you guys can follow this back and forth however you wish.
2: Sure. Yeah, I'll start if that's okay with you, Rich. Um, I would say, couple of things. Speed of work is different. I think we could probably say that in all aspects of our lives in general with technology and instant messaging and sort of the expectation of immediate response. But there's been an increased speed in, in the tax profession as well. Um, like I said, my 22-year anniversary with the firm is this year. I would say the first 18 to 19 years of my career, we were dealing with one set of rules Um, that you learned them, you implemented them, you got smarter at them, but you kind of continued to evolve around a set of rules that had been in existence for some time. And then when the pandemic hit, I I would argue we we pivoted to this sort of immediately effective or retroactively effective law passing at a moment in time um, where we're expected to be the experts. and, And you can read that new legislation, Rich, the same day that we as professionals are reading it. Um, So we've we've been, I think, drinking a bit from a fire hose from a profession um, and catching up on new rules and trying to help clients find opportunities and adapt as quickly as possible. Um, And then, of course, and I'll I'll let Brett speak to this a bit, but some of the challenges with the IRS and the understaffing issues that our clients are facing on on a daily basis.
0: Brett, what do you think's been different from past times? Talked about the speed and the the complexity, and the IRS not being able to keep up. Sure. So one of my
1: roles at Plant Moran is is I lead the tax controversy practice, which deals with IRS exams, IRS notice responses, that type of thing. And to to echo what what Rachel said, it's the complexity that has gotten so much deeper than it ever was before. Um, Congress puts in new new laws and rules that don't have a lot of historic background to them. And everyone is left to try to figure out what they mean or what they could mean. And so there's a lot of variability there that that has to be accounted for. As far as the IRS itself goes, one of the big challenges in dealing with them is they're a business too, and, and they were shut down and affected by the pandemic. And even now, they are still not fully back up and running to the point where they were before the pandemic happened. So they're trying to catch up at a point where they're not even going at the same rate as they were before, which just makes
0: things worse. The president said that that's the IRS just isn't been funded enough. And is it a matter of funding that the budget between fiscal year 2010 and 19 has been cut and that the number of people working at the IRS is down 20%. Was that pandemic related or budget related or something else? If you really look back at the last 30 years of the IRS, their manpower has dropped significantly.
1: So I think it's fair to say that they were really in a poor position to respond to an event like the pandemic. To say that it can be just cured with additional funding, though, might be a challenge because even if you hired a million new people today, those million people have to be trained, they have to learn what they're doing, and the IRS has been
0: challenged to just finding a small fraction of those numbers of people. Well, the bill pending in Congress right now, if I understand it correctly, would put more money, $80 billion, I believe, into the IRS should it become law. It looks like it's headed that way. Is that to play catch-up, or is that to, as more enforcement as some people have speculated? Yeah, I think that the details
1: will will come out. What I, what I saw was 80,000 new IRS agents, and I don't know what that means, whether that is IRS auditors or whether that is a combination of auditors and additional people in the service centers. Over the last several years, the IRS has cut back on the number of service centers that it has open, which has been planned. um, But again, they don't have a great record right now when it comes to processing returns, which ends up in the long run creating a lot of additional work for for taxpayers,
0: tax professionals, and the IRS itself. So they're kind of a rolling thunder where one small problem of underfunding has led to another problem. And you can just imagine the backlog these seem like results because the IRS isn't funded properly what else are you seeing and if there was a smart way to deploy that new funding should it occur where in your estimation do you two think it should go
2: the one thing rich i was going to say just from practical experience and perspective when we talk about you know resources at the IRS not just human beings with technical skills in the area that they're responsible for, because that's that's an issue on exam. Um, but just the technology aspect, you know, we in my intro kind of talked about speed and how quick we are to, you know, get emails and texts and things like that. The IRS, from a system standpoint, is way behind. Um, g- generally speaking, you cannot email documents to auditors, or they're not allowed to receive certain content in an email. Um, I think only recently with the pandemic have we done more digital data transfer during audits. Um, But I remember an exam of a client probably five to seven years ago. The first item on what they call IDR, which is the information document request. It's a list you get from the auditor on things that they want the taxpayer or the tax professional to provide. The first item listed was a copy of the tax return. To which my response was, why do you not have this? You selected us for audit and we filed the tax return on behalf of the taxpayer. What they get is um, worse than like DOS programming. It's a transcript that's just a bunch of numbers on a page. And so I'm sure Brett will have plenty of other colorful comments on where resources could go, but certainly a technology aspect is far behind sort of the rest of the universe, if you will.
0: It reminds me, I I was a programmer many years ago, and we were stuck with things like CPU capacity and processing speeds and storage speeds. So you got very thin presentation layers or the way you're describing it, raw data dumps versus what the rest of the world has become accustomed to. I can send a PDF document. I can receive an exact image. I can store it digitally. I can get it to you instantaneously. And most of the world, other than parts of the not-for-profit sector, like the federal government, like healthcare, I can get it in an app on my phone. So that technology investment seems to make a lot of sense. I can't even imagine the size of the undertaking, but that makes sense to me. Brett, what do you think about this? What else should we be thinking about, or what should our listeners, readers, and viewers need to understand about where this investment might go. So the the IRS has really been working in in recent
1: years towards just beefing up the e-filing side of things. And I think the the research shows that as e-filing goes, things work pretty efficiently. When a return is e-filed, it's generally accepted by the IRS in a reasonable amount of time and there just doesn't seem to be as many issues with that return as it is when there it's paper filed. So paper filing induces an extra step in the process. Now, instead of going straight into the IRS computers, it now has to go into the hands of an individual at the IRS who has to manually key that into the IRS system. Ouch. (laughs) uh,
0: uh, That is amazing. And, you know, the thing is when I think about the IRS, it's internal revenue service. And as Rachel explained in her bio, she's done a lot with professional services. And I was in the professional service business for a long time. And I know about setting expectation with the clients. So if we thought about IRS as a service, as it is, what should people expect from the IRS? And where do they excel? And I, we've heard a couple of areas that need to improve, but What should people expect and what are some of the strengths the IRS can build on? What are some areas that they need to shore up?
2: Just from a taxpayer perspective, so when I think about my clients, I I would say advising clients, plan on long waits. If we're dealing with correspondence, it's going to take months, especially now, to resolve an issue. And that, you know, with the hiring that's been going on, not all the auditors have the technical competence that we as tax professionals would expect them to have. So you can, after waiting on hold for a very long time, get an agent on the phone and be in a dead-end conversation because they're just not skill-equipped to talk about even some of the most basic issues. Um, So just from a taxpayer perspective, having that expectation that this is unfortunately going to be a bit of a... Painstaking, tedious, and probably longer than anyone would like process is really important to help us manage the relationship from a from a client service perspective.
1: yeah, definitely patience is key to working with the IRS. so um, just another issue i've I've seen recently is understanding how the IRS works, and the IRS is broadly divided into two categories. there's the exam side. And the the individuals on the exam side are experts in determining what is the proper amount of tax due. And there's the collection side, which those individuals are experts in determining how do we collect those taxes. Previously, you used to be able to call the IRS and you might find an individual on the call that might be able to help you with both sides of it. For instance, a, a notice goes out from the IRS telling a taxpayer, you owe us you know, $10,000 or whatever the amount is. That's coming from the exam side. Now, it might have worked through the process far enough to get into the collection side to the to where the IRS is now looking to collect that balance. And the response back from the taxpayer may be, look, IRS, we really don't owe this, and here's why. So at that point, you really need involvement from both the exam side and the collection side. We used to be able to call the IRS and speak to an individual who would have some expertise in both and be able to say, okay, I understand the situation. I'm just going to put a collection hold on this until the exam side has a chance to work your response and, and clear the account if it's warranted. It's become much more difficult to do that recently. And now we're to the point where exam will send out a notice or maybe it doesn't send out a notice. Maybe it gets lost in the mail. Who knows? But collection already up and running with it. So it takes sometimes two calls to the IRS. And sometimes that becomes part of the strategy in resolving because with the collection rights that a taxpayer has, one of those rights is that they haven't had an opportunity through the exam side, You can get to a point if the IRS is challenging or or trying to engage in involuntary collection of your taxes through a bank account seizure. That's a a time when you can raise the level to appeals and have an appeals agent look at that and say, "Yeah, you really don't owe the tax if that's what you're asserting." So we we've substituted sometimes appeals agents now having to do the work of people in a service center who might just have to
0: of. Punch in a number into their computer. That's just astonishing. What happens to a person if they need something from the IRS and they want to make this appeal, and now they're getting dunning notices, they're getting interest and penalties, I would assume, coming from the collection side of the house. And maybe, as you said, their bank accounts are being frozen. What's a taxpayer to do in a situation like that? It really
1: depends on the circumstances. One agency that can be helpful is the Taxpayer Advocate Service and that is a branch of the IRS that is actually responsible for answering to Congress and not to the the executive branch. They will frequently get involved. They have certain criteria. They can be very wonderful to work with. They can act as a liaison with the IRS itself. In some circumstances, they can substitute their judgment for the judgment of the IRS itself in the processing centers, and sometimes that can be done. Sometimes it's a matter of working through the process, and sometimes it's just a matter of, of waiting because going, going to appeals is not a quick solution anyway. When it comes to information that might be needed from the IRS, there is the ability to go through a Freedom of Information Act request. That's been slowed down because of the pandemic. And so there's no one-size-fits-all answer. Sometimes, though, it is a problem, as you know, because you'll get a notice from the IRS that'll say you owe X dollars, but really no good explanation as to why. So it does take some work behind the scenes sometime to say what's causing this. And in the end, it often becomes a lot more efficient to go through and and retrace your steps to just document that I've done everything right here and you
0: should correct your records, IRS. Yeah, it's just amazing. And almost to my lay. Ears, it sounds like, well, to get it resolved, you need an act of Congress or a FOIA request. When you know, as a layperson, I have no idea how to start a FOIA request, maybe I need to learn. But are there better ways than others to contact the IRS? Is it just get on the phone and wait, or is there web services? Or I, I don't think there's an app or way to text or find an advisor like yourself for when the dollars can justify that. How would you tell people to? go about contacting the IRS?
2: Rich, it's a great question. And I'll give you the standard tax answer. It depends. <laughs> it depends on the issue. The and economists the facts. give that answer
0: too, by the way. So
2: I know. So very true though. Um, I mean, it truly does depend on the issue. I mean, perfect example, and this just happened, but I had a, a client forward me a notice from the IRS from 2017. They just got the letter last month. For a return that was filed in 2018 and it was a trust return, marked final, there was no income on the return, actually a loss, no tax due, and there's an assessment of of tax and penalty without explanation. So, you know, the only way to solve that is to get on the phone. You know, the taxpayer can call directly. um, Expect long waits. If you want a tax professional to call on your behalf, we can do that, but we do need to have a signed power of attorney it's a joint return, both spouses should be signing. Um, So there's some paperwork back and forth to get that set up. You have to get that faxed into the IRS and have it on record before they would talk to us without the taxpayer present. Um, But in this particular situation, the IRS was asserting that the return was filed late. Of all things, a 27 return, 2017 tax return filed in 2018, well before the pandemic and the shutdown and the backlog of, of documents that we hear about in the news constantly of, of millions of documents unprocessed by the IRS. This issue is old and just now getting to the surface.
0: You also used the F word there, which I, I hope was a <laughs> misstatement. You said it was faxed. I mean... <laughs> Who faxes these days? The IRS. (laughs) I was wondering what happened to all those machines that everybody got rid of. I, I think we've answered that question. And look, there's been a lot of reports about the service problems, including refund delays, insufficient refund information online. And one report I was reading in preparation for this said that only 29% of calls for taxpayer assistance are being answered how could that possibly be or is that more pandemic related i think that's probably more historic and i i think the numbers i've seen more recently are lower than that so if i'm a taxpayer and I need to contact the IRS Will say it's been misfiled as we've been talking. I'm going to go into a lottery where I may have one in five chances that anybody's actually going to talk to me. They're even going to pick up the phone. And then another layer of whether that person has the skill set to help, another layer, maybe they don't have the technology to help me. This can't be good when I look at, let's put another $80 billion into this. So from listening to you two, it sounds like there were a lot of issues going on and then the pandemic response really just crushed things. Am I getting close to that? I think that's fair. Most of the time, though, the IRS gets it
1: right. I mean, we're talking about the outliers and I see a lot of the outliers and Rachel, you probably see fewer of the outliers, but you still see a a fair amount. Most of the time, particularly
0: when it comes to e-filing, the the IRS gets things right. Brett, I did read one report that the IRS website was down, which did impact the ability to do an e-file. Have they upgraded the technology since or maybe repaired what they had? I'm not sure if
1: they have or not. I I think they have. As far as I know, things on the e-filing side are are going okay. Um, Right now, Last I heard, one of the one of the options you have is to request a tax transcript. So, a tax transcript is is just a a transcript of all events that might have occurred with respect to a particular return for a taxpayer for a particular year. Historically, you know, they've taken two to four days to request. Sometimes you can get on the phone and get them sent over right then. Um, I recently. Talk to somebody who's an intermediary who requests these, these transcripts on behalf of taxpayers through authorizations. And originally, we were talking about getting them in two to four days. And after my, my call with them, he said that he checked with somebody internally and they're running about three weeks. So just overnight, one of the issues, the IRS, this is what I've heard anyway, they redeployed a lot of people in, in response to questioning at Congress Redeployed people from the customer service side, the phone line side, they took half of the resources literally overnight without telling anybody, and moved them on to the return processing side to, to clear some of the backlog. So right now, if you're on hold with the IRS for two hours, that you get a courtesy disconnect, so you're not waiting forever, and you re enter the queue, that's gotten worse since
0: they've they've done that. I've never thought of a disconnect. Being courteous, but um, <laughs> I guess that's it's the, gov- it's the government. It doesn't need to make sense. I remember reading the reports back in January where it was said the IRS was just buried in paperwork. And I take what you're saying as an attempt to clear that. Um, and then I've been reading lately about something called the free file system. And, and I have to profess I don't know anything about it. Could you two explain to our listeners, our readers, and our viewers of the Common Bridge what is the free file system? How does it work? How is it supposed to work? And does it relate to anything that we've been talking about vis a vis service issues?
1: So at at Plant Moran we use our our own software. We we have a vendor that provides that. We don't use the free file system ourselves from. What I understand of the system, it is available for taxpayers to use at the IRS website and file their own tax returns. It, as I understand it, goes through the same e-filing process. And so it, it would seem to be helpful from the standpoint of being a more efficient way of a taxpayer providing their information to the IRS and getting it into the IRS systems with minimal effort on, on either side. The only thing I would say about that is it's not universally available as I would understand it. So I think there are certain criteria, your income has to be below a certain
0: level, that type of thing. I don't know if it's universally available to everyone. I know I used to use web-based apps. can't recall the name now, but it was 18 or $25 at the time. And I know like H&R Block has one. So this is kind of a replacement for that. I think so. Let's be dangerous for a little bit, all right? Let's talk about some policy ideas. Are the current tax policies just so cumbersome that they just don't make any sense in today's climate? I think it depends on
1: your point of view. So the tax law, first and foremost, is a tool of social engineering. We don't have a a flat tax that everybody pays with the IRS. It has gone from a ideally or at least you know simply you have a regressive tax which is simply everyone pays the same amount on whatever their income is it's moved to a progressive scheme where your rates go up as your income goes up and to further complicate things deductions and credits are incredibly complicated and you know the, the tax law has a way of picking winners and losers so just on that basis it's really hard to say what should or shouldn't be because it all depends upon what your point of view is. And what we've seen is a lot of that depends upon the, the will of the, the party in, in charge of, of Washington.
0: Well, you know, to that point, two of them that have been addressed by each of the two past administrations, you know, providing that this bill finally becomes law, but the Trump administration capped the deduction for state and local taxes long overdue. but It only benefits extremely high-income people in very high-tax states, but, but in effect, you resulted in middle-class taxpayers throughout the country subsidizing extremely wealthy people in a few of the high-tax states. Um, and despite numerous attempts to undo that limitation, that looks like it's going to remain the law. And then in the current bill, one more attempt to get the carried interest tax treatment back to regular income because it is for labor versus the capital gains taxes that result from putting actually capital up. But to your point about the, it depends, I've read astonishingly articulate defenses of the opposite viewpoint on both of those. And I have to say they're quite clever, but I hope that we can hold the line and get rid of the carried interest treatment, tax favor treatment, and continue to maintain the state and local tax cap. Are there tax policies that are more misunderstood than the others in your practice that somebody thinks they're doing the right thing and they they get surprised? Like, oh, I didn't know I could do that.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, I, I see a fair amount, especially in professional service space. I've got a pretty large like architect, engineering, construction client base. Um, you'd be shocked. Those, those businesses are often eligible for the research and development credit. They might not think that they are because they're not scientists in lab coats testing DNA, for example, but a lot of their projects, the way those contracts are written, they're eligible. We've been dealing with um, a long-standing proposed, keeps getting kind of kicked down the road, limitation on not the credit, but the deduction of the expenses related to generation of the credit. Right now, you have the option, you have the ability to take a current deduction for the expenses, as well as, as take a credit. What's, Proposed to happen, and and technically is law today for calendar 22, absent some extender bill at the end of the year or something getting put into a bill that's retroactively effective, as of today, if you're doing R&D, you can still take your credit, but you need to add back and capitalize and amortize those expenses over time. Um, for some businesses that you know, we've been talking about it and talking about it and talking about it and constantly say next year, next year, next year. Well, we're here. And when you start to run the math, there's a lot of sticker shock on, wow, this is really impactful to my quarterly estimates. We've got businesses technically that are probably underpaid on estimates at the moment because they've not been adding that back. But on the flip side, they don't want to outlay the cash because there could be a change in law that's retroactive. And so um, I think there's a lot of importance to being strategic and planning and having conversations with your tax professionals. Because we are in this constant changing sort of ever, ever existing limbo land for, for lack of a better term.
0: Are there any laws or pending legislation that you'd like to see passed? I know that I like the idea of the child tax credit, but in your practice, do you ever get frustrated and say, you know what? that legislation doesn't belong here, or we need a, a regulation that does X, Y, or Z. So there's a lot of different
1: proposals that, that have been out there. To, to really identify an opportunity for, for an individual taxpayer, it, it becomes a matter of looking at their current situation. There's a lot of structuring options. Sometimes it's more efficient to combine taxpayers into a single you know, business structure. Uh, those types of things from from an overall policy standpoint it's it's really hard to say but one thing i'd i'd like to see is just some of the complexity become reduced and when it comes to to washington every time they they talk about making it simpler they end up making it more complex
0: there's actually been task forces to make things more streamlined in the healthcare industry for example and all it does is result in even more process and more collisions amongst policy you two have been really generous with your time first of all and i feel like we've barely scratched the surface, but I think it's such an important topic. And it's not being covered in what we would hope the news would be able to tell us about. You all ought to be on a cable news channel, or at least on (laughs) local channels, telling people about this. Uh, But we do have a growing audience at the Common Bridge now reaching several million people. And so this will be heard. So with that audience... What didn't we cover today that perhaps we should have talked about? From a procedure standpoint, the the
1: key is to, number one, remain patient with the IRS. Sometimes it does take sending several letters in. Another suggestion is make sure that you're getting good advice as to the proper step in the process that you're in because the IRS does have deadlines imposed by law that if you miss those deadlines, you, you, you can get to a point of no return. And overall, the best way to deal with the IRS is not to deal with them at all. So in a perfect world, your return is submitted and everything's perfect. There's nothing that's caught by an IRS system that would generate a notice or anything that would require you to enter into this labyrinth of notice responses, and you're, you're back to just having to, to suffer along with everyone else with the possibility that your return might be audited as opposed to having to, res- to respond to a mistake on your return.
0: Well, I hope that all of our listeners, readers, and viewers heard that part that two really important things that I heard was, number one, be patient. And number two, an ounce of prevention that if you get proper counsel on the way in, you won't be dealing with audits and penalties and things on the way out or after the fact. As we kind of move to wrap up here, I'm going to ask kind of an omnibus question and you can take it as kind of a lightning round. But advice for our viewers, maybe if there are any policy recommendations for the IRS so it can fulfill its mission. I mean, we do need to run the government. And then you know, maybe any closing thoughts that that you might have. And I don't know who wants to go first, but floor is yours to bring us home here.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll go first. I mean, I think Brett alluded to this earlier and, and kind of indirectly in his last comment, like using the e-file system whenever and wherever possible is is tantamount to success. Um, but it's not just a transmission of the return, like making sure that the, the tax return itself is accurate so that there isn't a subsequent inquiry. From the IRS, because once you're in that inquiry process, you're back to phone calls, paper, time delays on processing paper um, that just become very cumbersome. Um, I had another thought, but it totally escaped me. Oh, I remember now. So the the other piece of advice I would suggest is um, there is an online system on the IRS's website for making payments for estimated taxes balance due with return. You can make your extension payments online. Rich, when you mentioned earlier about an e-file system down, I think it actually was the payment system like the day before a quarterly due date, six or nine months ago, where people were trying to make payments online and literally could not submit, unfortunately. However, I still would strongly encourage people use that system. um, You can either link to a bank account or you can for a fee pay with a credit card, but at least your payments getting posted under your social security number. There's a data um, uh, ID verification process that you go through when you go to make that payment online Um, because a lot of clients still and taxpayers still mail paper checks. And if that check is literally lost in the mail and you didn't send it certified where there's proof of receipt of timely filing, Um, we stand in an uphill position to try to argue abatement of penalties and interest. And I've got a client with that exact situation, made his extension payment, did not send it certified. The IRS has not cashed his check because it's lost somewhere, maybe at a service center, who knows where. Um, And he's got late payment penalties that we can't, abate because we can't even provide evidence that he timely made his payment.
0: Rachel, again, thank you for that insight. And and we're just, again, barely scratching the the surface on this, but I think it's been a fascinating conversation. Brett, any actions that you could recommend people take or policies for the IRS or who knows, maybe from a policy perspective, what's the worst thing we could do or any closing thoughts that you might have? One thing I'd like to see
1: perhaps from a funding standpoint, is the IRS maybe get a little bit more money to, to handle appeals. Mm-hmm. Right now, the, the IRS, they, they call it the IRS Independent Office of Appeals, is the formal title to, to emphasize the fact that they're not part of the IRS. They are really um, behind with a lot of matters to the point where it's running sometimes 12 to 18 months to, to have a matter heard at the IRS Office of Appeals. And they really end up standing as kind of the last line of defense at the IRS before a matter goes to tax court a lot of time, Their goal is to resolve issues fairly to taxpayers and to the government. But they take the view that they are looking at it from the standpoint that, you know, what is IRS counsel got to do with this? What is tax court going to do with this? They consider hazards of litigation on behalf of the government too. And it would seem like if that were put into the process a little bit earlier, we might be able to clear some of that backlog and just make the process a little bit more open and friendlier to to taxpayers who, who currently have to wait a long time to have that process resolved.
0: We've been talking today with Rachel Keller and Brett Bissonet of the public accounting firm, Plant & Moran. Please look them up on their website. We've been covering the IRS today and some of the challenges facing us. And so please subscribe to The Common Bridge, of course, at substack.com. Look at The Common Bridge. Consider a paid or a free subscription. We're available on most podcast outlets on YouTube TV and, of course, at Mission Control Radio on your Radio Garden app. And so with our guests, Rachel Keller and Brett Bissonette, this is Rich Helpe signing off on the Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on the Common Bridge. Please subscribe to the Common Bridge on Substack.com, where you can find more interviews, columns, podcasts, video, and other nonpartisan discussions to the problems of today. On Substack, you can access the full archive and bonus columns, podcasts, and interviews for only $5 a month. Please go to Substack.com and search for the Common Bridge and subscribe.